Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Making Good, a podcast about the people, products, ideas and initiatives doing the work the world needs now. My name is Lee Evans. This week's guest is Araceli Camargo, cognitive neuroscientist at Centric Labs in London. Araceli joined me to talk about the emerging role of neuroscience in explaining how built environments can create pathologies in the people that live in them and what that means for the people affected. We talked about how every planner, architect, consultant and developer working in ways that shape the built environment are also, whether they know it or not, healthcare practitioners and how this can and will increasingly shape the way we design and build the places that we live. The conversation covered a lot of ground and really was an absolute pleasure to explore this new and in some ways deeply challenging frontier of our professional work. As ever, if you find it valuable, please take a moment to engage with us on Twitter. You can find us at Making Good Pod and write a nice review on iTunes. Hope you enjoy. Aricelli, so um, thanks so much for joining me this week. Could you maybe begin by um, by explaining um, what we mean by uh, by this concept of biological inequality that I've been reading about recently. Um, so biological inequality was coined by one of the researchers in our lab called Elahi uh, Hussein. And because we were discussing, well, when you discover something, it is a lot easier to pass on that information if you can identify it and you can frame it and you can then discuss it. Because we kept seeing a repetition in the research and also in, in you know, out in real life that people were experiencing, certain people I should say, were experiencing higher levels of environmental stressors, so air, noise, light, pollution and also equally higher levels of psychosocial stressors. Psychosocial stressors or psychological stressors are stressors from experiences. And that combination coming together is what we call biological inequality, i.e. because their system, their biological system, their body is being put through a lot more biological stress than other people who do not have those two inputs that are that have lower psychosocial or psychological stressors and don't live in areas of high environmental stressors. And what we discovered is that that combination is one of the root cause or one of the root pathways to disease. And once we uncovered that, then that has led us to um, coining the term in in the context of the built environment because having that identity for people to and by people I mean urban planners specifically and also policymakers those two those two groups being able to describe that and point to them this is an area that has high levels of biological inequality therefore it's going to have high levels of uh, uh, sorry uh, it's going to present a higher level of risk um, to people's health. That phenomena is something that hadn't fully been articulated in those in, in those terms. Of course, we have very useful terms like environmental racism, and we have terms like inequality. But we're saying it's both. When you have environmental racism, and you have inequality based because of structural racism, you get this new phenomena. But more importantly, once we have that phenomena identified, we can now produce solutions, which is the important part, right? We can we can then understand what are the nodes that we need to that we need to adjust in order to then elevate people's health in those environments. 
Right, so this is um, this is absolutely fascinating, and there's there's quite a bit to unpack here. In order to work our way back up to um, to some of the um, the means we can identify for for making positive improvements, um, can we unpack um, neuroscience a little bit? So your background's in in neuroscience. Others, I guess, in the lab are, are as well. Can you tell um, for those who are uninitiated or maybe have a basic not knowledge of the science like myself what is what neuroscience is what it what it um what it covers and how it informs the kind of data you go about collecting what it what you notice as a result of coming from that perspective yeah sure so neuroscience is part of the biological science so that's all the taxonomy it's biology and um and it's it's a vast science it's t- it is technically the, the central nervous system or the study of the central nervous system, which means it's brain and the spinal cord. So it is actually a full body, full system um, study. And a lot of the times people think that it's just the brain, but the clue is in the name, which is neuro, um, as in neurons, and we have neurons all over our bodies. Um, but yes, the brain, I think, takes the grand, um, like, like a like an epicenter because you know it's very mysterious and we we still don't know it very well so i think that there's a little bit of i think sometimes myth when it comes to like you know is you know how does the brain work um but we look specifically at the stress response and the stress response again is a full system response um so yes the conversation starts in the brain so the brain then communicates through through neurons that release specific hormones um, in the hippocampus um, which is a which is a part in the brain it communicates down to our adrenal glands that also end up releasing hormones like cortisol that come back up to the brain and after a certain threshold indicate to the system that they are that the system is under a stress um and that is what we're looking at because we decided to go down in that very specific and then what i will say sorry to your def- point of definition that's like a very small point so neuroscience can also be the study of dementia it can be the study of depression um but it also can can be the study of of its own anatomy so how does you know very specifically how does the hippocampus work and memory and learning and retention work um but it can also be computational so one of our one of our um team members she's a computational neuroscientist which means she is creating computational models of how the brain works in order to be able to essentially understand bigger phenomena about the brain and also perhaps feed it over to to ai modeling so for example modeling um how neurons communicate so you can do a computational model of an entire brain system um, to see how that specific part of the brain is 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 working or communicating to another part of the brain or back to back to the central nervous system um, so it's so it's incredibly vast so in that humongous melee we're just specifically looking at the stress response right so um so these are the um these are the the kind of the data sets that you're um, that you're using does this do you tend to look more at um uh 
projects before built environment projects before they've been built or is it something are you looking retrospectively at issues with um with existing projects and in i guess in in either case what's the um what are the what's the toolbox that you use yes. what's how <laughs> what yeah, so we do look at we look at both. Um, you know, I mean, so much of our of our cities are built, so we have to look we have to look at both. Um, so one of our so we go through a process. Our first process is that we we have to assess, right? We have to understand where we're at. Are we in a place that is quote unquote healthy, or are we in a place that is not? healthy um or better yet is it a place that is providing health resilience or not um so for that we we created a software called um a stress street score and it does exactly what it says on the tin we assess the biological stress that an area potentially is causing a person um and that is based on um looking at air pollution, light pollution, noise pollution, and thermal pollution. Um, because we know that when those four coalesce, they obviously present more of a risk to people, but also they're very measurable. They're measurable, measurable from our side, so from the stress response, because in acute measures, they all engage the stress response. I mean, air pollution, for example, doesn't have to reach a threshold or like a specific threshold our body deems it as a stress from first in uh impact or, or from from first uh sorry interaction where something like noise pollution it does have to reach a certain decibels we can tolerate a certain level of decibels and after a certain amount of decibels then our body goes okay that's 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 too much that is now a stressor to me um, um so that is what that is what we look at to then go okay this environment is now going to pose a health risk for the following reasons and because we can measure those four we can then assess you know it does this area present more levels of noise and or light or or more more thermal and and noise um and then that's important to understand because in the assessment process, because then we will understand what is the route then to to pathology. Um, so what by that I mean, um, obesity, for example, is a really interesting case. It is incredibly, I think, mythologized that we have said that you know uh, we think of obesity as a problem of exercise and diet. Yes, that is part of it, but that's like. That's the equivalent of um, seeing something like at it, like we're looking too far out into 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 the supply chain. Um, so, by, uh, obesity starts with a change in someone's metabolical system. So, if a person is living in high levels of air pollution and and light pollution, so they are not allowing the circadian rhythm to actually operate the way that it should and then they're not getting the right levels of sleep that starts to change our metabolic responses including the insulin insulin response which is very tied to obesity and diabetes um, so then we can have that conversation with with sorry with the councils or with a developer that we're that we're working with and then from there we develop a health code which is then to tell you okay these are the nodes in the built environment that you need to move that gets passed down to a designer we are not designers that's something that i think is very crucial to understand um and then and then so we set we set the the i guess the tone of how you work design in order to elevate health 
so you said something very interesting in there maybe it's um, a little bit of a um, maybe to bracket this within the in the conversation but I think it's something that's worth exploring because we're very used um, in our in the in the current um, cultural political context um, to the um, to the dispute if you like um, between um, two groups of people who um, who argue about whether or not people are responsible for their own um, for their own for their own conditions this you describe um, something in the science which indicates that there is um, that that there are um, influences um, beyond um, beyond the conscious mind as to what your what your behavior your um, your disposition towards stimuli might um, might be and might grow and is it how how far does this do you do you feel like this is an important intervention in that in that question about whether or not people are responsible for their own situation in life such a good question so we're gonna get a little bit philosophical here you can only be responsible for sorry you can only claim responsibility as an individual when the system gives you the right support so for example if, you know, if, if we're just being really blunt, you, you, you can't tell a person, um, like, for example, right now with COVID, one of the things that are being told is, wash your hands. Okay, great. But everywhere I go in the urban realm, there's not a single portable wash station. There is in Rwanda. So when Rwanda's government says, wash your hands, and the person doesn't wash their hands, then yes, you, we can go, well, it's the responsibility of the citizen to wash their hands in the urban realm and not spread COVID. But when the government tells you wash your hands, but then doesn't give you the infrastructure or the affordance to be able to take on that responsibility, then you can't be responsible for it. Does that make sense? Um, and so that's the same thing with health you can tell someone and it i must admit it's a real pet peeve of mine that even after covid going into some of these um parliamentary groups that are saying oh you know one of the things and i must admit like in a very posh voice you know one must create more incentives and i'm like it's not an incentivized problem do you think i don't i mean i've never met a single human that's like yeah i'll get diabetes that'll be a good life for me like it's not a choice like that's that's it's a it's so incredible to me that people think that you're unhealthy because of choice or because of a lack of responsibility like that's that's nuts you, you anyway um so you so you can create the incentives to say go for a run but let like let's imagine that there is a single parent they have to do two jobs they might live next to a park a beautiful accessible safe park but if that parent has to do the two jobs plus parental care and you know we're living in a day and age where um parents are getting sicker or sick younger right so maybe this person is in their 30s their parents might be in their 60s already so showing some signs maybe of dementia or other other things that need care so this person and this is not uncommon um is is has all of that on their plate taking care of a parent taking care of a child plus having to 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 do or sorry adhere to financial responsibilities how, where does that person have the time to go um, to the park? Furthermore, if they're doing two jobs and they're doing shift work, um, 
you, that is already changing and having more impactful changes to their body than 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 I would say the cookie that they're going to eat over the banana, for example. Um, and then finally, the psychosocial stressors, or in that case, is psychological stressors from having to be a single parent, having to then take the responsibility of a, of a parent that might be sick. That's a lot on the body. So then to tell that person you have diabetes or obesity because you're not incentivized is, is actually insulting. Um, when you haven't given the, all the affordances. So we talk about health as a system for that reason. The urban environment is one of them. I'm going to, um, I want to definitely want to get into this um, question <laughs> of um, health as a health as a system. I'm going to save that like, tasty morsel for a little bit later on if I, if I, um, if I may. <clears throat> I think a lot of the um, people that um, that I know are, are listening to, um, to the, to the podcast are coming at this either from built environment or, um, or urban canopy or um, green infrastructure um, backgrounds. So let's take in as, um, <clears throat> if we can if we can kind of extrapolate out from the ins the insight that um that we're able to diagnose um stress from the presence of um of um of certain environmental um conditions and then that we know that there's you know because other disciplines other elements of um of the health sciences are working on exactly what that does to people perhaps is it the case that um interventions we're doing uh that, that we that we have it within our capacity to recommend or to specify or what will these will will this track straight back into health outcomes so we'll get on to what things we might do but is everyone listening to this whose, whose ears have pricked up and said okay we, we're actually healthcare professionals now as well brilliant what yes. can i do yeah. what does um is it is it the case that we can expect um um a, different interventions in the built and uh, um and um uh, urban um uh, uh, public realm to um to be starting feeding back in in a positive way to these individuals who have suffered stress responses well if we have anything to do with it yes <laughs> um but, <clears throat> but so i think you said something there really important which is that we are now health professionals that's exactly what i want people in the built environment to see themselves as absolutely you're coming into the system of health health is not if we think of health as a system it means we're going beyond the boundaries of person to doctor or just the person themselves and their in their personal choices so that that's one of the key messages i think from our lab um and obviously if people can understand uh, sorry get one thing from this is that you are now a health practitioner so yes how you know properly how you are making an environment you know greener but with purpose as we discussed offline right that you are paying attention to the to the to the microbiome that people are ingesting because there are enzymes and really deep physiological things that happen to our body when we interact with nature it's not just the aesthetic or or almost like the the aesthetical vanity of a green space um so when we come back to the single parent if if that parent is at least walking through the park if you're at least giving that affordance that's a massive difference to their health even if they don't interact with it night and day the way maybe um somebody working from home would um but if you give them that choice, that life that is going through that park every day to get through work and interacting with a green space, like again, a very healthy, robust green space, you are already reducing stress levels. You are 
you are supporting the biological system in a way that, for example, a person that has all the descriptors that I just that I just put forward, plus their way home is on a bus for an hour and a half. So that means they're in sitting inhaling pollution for an hour and a half because that's one of the one of the one of the worst uh, what do you call it places to ingest pollution is being on top of a bus or inside of a car ironically enough um, um, you know if we take those just just that tiny little that where we might think is a tiny little thing that can have um, long-term positive changes because we're talking a, a compoundment of time right that this is happening day in and day out that's the difference between that person being able to get a better night's sleep and not. And if, and we know what sleep does to the, to the, to the human system. I've got a, um, a friend who works in, <clears throat> works for a football club. And he said that now that, um, that sleep is the, f is the front line of, um, of, of performance for elite, elite, elite athletes now. Yeah. Right? There's nothing. I mean, you, you've got food, oxygen, sleep. And technically, oxygen comes in both, right? You can't eat and not have it. <laughs> you would die without oxygen. But 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 it, it, it's food and it and it's sleep, one hundred percent. So um, so what are um, right? So shape my um, shape this thought into something um, meaningful. So we know that um, interventions in um, in public realm. Um, <clears throat> kind of shaped urban development over the years so there's been um the presence of parks the amount of light um sanitary conditions size of windows these have all been areas of which which have uh, where the envelope the boundaries have been pushed the envelope's been um the envelope's been pushed um which have been contested but which are now kind of um a fundamental to what we how we experience the urban the urban space so is is the insights that you're presenting here from um, from neuroscience, from um, um, from uh, fr from your discipline? Is this is this new? And if it's and if it is new, what what's the what's the what's the linear uh, what's the lineage rather of these interventions? What was um, what was the understanding of um, of um, of health that um, that animated some of these before? That if it wasn't neuroscience, hmm, that makes sense. Question. Yeah, yeah, it does. Um, well, from the neuroscience side, the discipline side, um, I mean, we've known that the environment is, it's like, it's primordial. I mean, it's just also historic. I mean, the fact that we have the muscular skeletal system that we do and how our brain then interacts and makes us move with the environment is because we have gravity, right? Like that is, you know, even gravity that makes us stand upright, um, then that means we're going to navigate and see the world in a very in a very specific way than for example a bird um um whose brain and body and system is completely adapted to 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 that activity and how how it interacts with 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 the world around us so it's it's historic it's a, an evolutionary um uh, i would say no it's a historic knowledge pool that we do know that that um that we are shaped by our environment I think epidemiology, well, not I think, epidemiology has been a big uh, science for for the built environment. The gap has been not necessarily, so us coming in from a neuro perspective, what it allows us to do is create a pathway between the environment and 
the disease pathways of very specific things of metabolical and mental health, which are two prongs of disease types that are on the rise, right? So depression, anxiety, uh, PTSD, and then on the other hand, obesity and diabetes. They also are incredibly interlinked. A lot of people that are, that are obese are also either anxious or depressed and vice versa. PTSD or an acute trauma can can change your metabolism to the point where you can then be incredibly susceptible to diabetes thereafter. Asthma is also highly, highly linked to anxiety. So um, so to 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 be able to give that pathway, that very clear pathway, that's where we're coming in as the as as intervening in the knowledge gap that the stress response allows us to be able to have that conversation so we can do what historically planners and policymakers have been asking in order to move the dial is evidence evidence this so you can do an epidemiological study and say air pollution is linked to diabetes cool but unfortunately, that's not good enough for a planner. That should be good enough for a planner where they should be like, okay, yeah. I mean, like, again, it's another it's another place that I feel like we're a little bit deluded as a society where I'm like, I shouldn't have to be like, I shouldn't exist. Like, I shouldn't have to tell you that air pollution. No, that air pollution is bad. Like, of course it is. I shouldn't have to turn myself inside out and upside down to give you the metrics. Sure. So I guess what I'm, what I, I guess what I, um, what I'm wondering it then is, has there been? Um, <clears throat> would you say that the history of um, of the interlinking of health and um, town planning, like the, the 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 healthiness of the places that we live, has this been has this been like a straight line of development? We we. Um, uh, as as the knowledge pool has expanded to um, to include a new a new thing, whether it's um, like you say epidemiology or um, or the effect of um, bad air on on your lungs or um, poor light on um, on mood, what have you. As things have learned, have we just like hungry hippos? We've taken the knowledge and we've gone. All right, we'll do better with this now in future. Um, <clears throat> so this it's it's um, it's actually fair. Would you say it's fair enough that, um, that we haven't we haven't designed well for stress because we just didn't know enough about it in the past? I think it is a pretext. I do, I really like. So again, back to COVID as a as a as a great microcosm to understand macrocosms or trends of behavior that we've had. Um. So we didn't quite know, like for sure, for sure. Like there wasn't the data that wearing a mask helped. But there is common sense in that. You cough, you spread the virus. We were told that from day one. So if I cough into a cloth that absorbs the particles, do I take down the risk of putting that viral spray into the atmosphere? Of course it does. But then, then, but everyone then pretends that we need the data in order to to move, and and then you know our our doctors and nurses and our and our and our essential workers didn't get the mask and get the right PPEs because 
they downgraded the risk of the virus. So, so, so I think we scape, we use data as a scapegoat that we're like, mm, let's just wait for the evidence. So epidemiologists, like I said, have always told us, they've told us for a very long time that a bad environment equals disease. The first study on this was done in 1939, um, linking schizophrenia to an impoverished um, Chicago uh, neighborhood. Um, so that to me, ethically, morally, that should be enough to move. So, but what we notice is that that wasn't enough to move. So now what we're doing is we're going, okay, now we're going to give you a software, something that you can measure, that you can see, um, which is why also we did the COVID study because we were like, okay, this is no longer a coincidence. You have the areas that have the higher levels of deprivation and you have the higher levels of environmental stressors. Those are also the areas where COVID is higher. That that is how it links up. So we're hoping now that with that level of evidence, we get the traction or the Overton window for, for planners and policymakers to go, oh, right, the build environment does affect us. But like I said, I do think people have been pretending that they didn't need to move until the data came about. The data has been there for a very long time. Sure. And I, it's interesting to hear that you say that, um, that, that it's that it's dated back many like decades scores of um Over scores of years. Sc yeah <laughs> scores of years but then so so the because we know that i i know from driving around um driving or walking or um moving around cities that i visited all over the world that these things aren't evenly distributed these problems like um the negativities aren't evenly distributed so i guess the one of the ways that I, the reasons that i was couching the question in terms of did we know is to is to see if there's a plausible past that can be given um when we looked for explanations as to why some areas um um some areas that we've that we've as a society um, conspired to um to build produce really negative um health outcomes and other places that we know don't is it a um like I saw you recently tweeted about um, <clears throat> Judith Butler, this idea of grievability, and obviously those um, that work that she's been doing um, philosoph uh, uh, as a philosopher for many years. I, I'm not going to attempt to unpack it now, but to, to to make it as simple as possible for people who don't know about it, it's the idea that some people aren't worse. Some people's deaths don't matter. Some groups that don't, um, some groups in society's death don't matter. They're not grievable, um, and I and I and I wonder if there's it's something in this idea that that, that we may an, an uncomfortable truth that we may have to face as part of the process of working out how to do it better is um is to face the question of why we've allowed some areas to to to, to not merit um to, to not be produced to not be built to be developed in the um in the same way as um as yeah. others yeah i mean if you're asking about racism, <laughs> um, then yes, I mean, it, it depends at what in what timeline, I guess, we, we look at this. I mean, we, we can't not discuss structural, which, which is what this is, it's structural racism, structural violence. The term structural violence was coined in the 1800s, and I'm going to forget his name, um, by a Scandinavian philosopher. Um, which is crazy because it's a really long time. And I don't even know how he came up with it because I don't think they were going through structural violence. But he de he described it as the 
when someone's full potential is truncated by elements that they not, cannot control, i.e. by the system. So we're talking about the system again. Um, and then that, that, that's, that, that uh, structural violence is sort of like the, like the godparent of, then, um, uh, uh, of, of structural racism. Um, it's, we, I mean, we've done it. I mean, how, we can, how, I guess it's almost like, how far can we go? Like we've done this since the time of slavery, like slavery, we, we, and I say we, I had nothing to do with it. If anything, my people were also enslaved. Um, uh, the idea of imperialism and the making of money, you had to then justify why certain people mattered less. So we actually did create sciences that supported why people mattered less. And that legacy just has been going and going and going. I, I, a lot of people can't wrap their heads around that we have done very little mental evolution in 500 years, but we ha we really haven't because it just it just keeps taking different forms, and we're seeing that with COVID right now. The the BAME communities, specifically Black communities, are disproportionately dying, and it is not because there's something different in their gene pool. Technically, there is no such thing as race. They're genetically, we're all the same. You can't open us up genetically and be like, that's a white person, that's a black person. You can't do that. Um, so it, it's, it's not that. It's, as I said, it's when the system has more stressors that then they become more vulnerable. Now, we have to bring in, we have to bring in capitalism into the conversation. Once we've decided as, as it goes that these lives don't matter as much, then we can put those lives right next to a highway. So this goes into the work that we did for the, for the community at, um, at uh, South Hall. It got to the point where there was a school, uh, elementary school, what do you guys call it? Primary school, next to this site. And they were told that that was safe for those kids. We know that that wouldn't happen if it was eaten. We just know it wouldn't. As someone who is, um, who is an, an advocate, not only for, a, um, for a, an underrepresented group within the professions, right, but also as an advocate for these, um, these scientific ideas which are under, underrepresented, what insights do you have as to like how, like how, how to talk about it with people like that, um, like I... You must. There must be. You must experience friction and and, and, <laughs> and, and resistance, right? So, like, from I don't. I no, I, 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 I genuinely. I, I, I genuinely. <laughs> but I genuinely come humbly with the with with the question, like, in terms of your experience of trying to um, trying to foreground, um, even if we just say inequality, but 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 without you know without distinguishing um, distinguishing between the different forms that that takes across genders, class, and. Um, you know, and and and, um, and 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 ethnic groups as well. Um, like, how how do you how do you like? Yeah, how have you how have you come to talk about it in the in the in the way that you have? And I'm, I guess I'm I only want to dwell on this a little bit because I imagine that there'll be um, that there'll be people listening to this that will be that will be like me in a space where they um where they've not heard it heard it spoken about in relation to to our disciplines but maybe not maybe un unlike me maybe their an, an initial reaction is discomfort or 
or like or, or a struggle to to square it away i can't talk to them so i can but i can talk to you <laughs> about, <that experience>. but, yeah. <laughs> about your experience of it yeah i mean okay so so uh so yeah so i would say yes of course we 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 hit the friction but for those that this is uncomfortable for you have to really ask yourself what is in your mental frameworks that makes someone asking for justice uncomfortable like if i mean i don't i don't understand it i really really don't because if anybody told me as i'm walking down the street to and they told me do you know what you just pushed me and that's not right i would be really embarrassed and be like oh my god i'm so sorry are you okay i i just couldn't foresee me saying no i didn't or that was your fault. And again, it's a very simple metaphor, but that's exactly the metaphor of ha what happens in the macrocosm. So um, um, Angela, who, uh, Fonzo, who is the key leader for cash, um, you know, she was gaslighted across the way by everybody from Public Health England to, to environmental agencies, to the council, to Barclay, the, develop the, the developers that know that the health that she was suffering, the hospitalizations that she and her community were experiencing were nothing to do with the new input of, of stimuli, right? The new, the new construction. Um, now, you might say that they just didn't have the right data. So to that is why we do the work that we do. So the report that we that we created our job was to give her the checkmate formula because she was doing a great job campaigning she knew exactly obviously her own experience but i said to her we either bury ourselves in the minutia of biology and we start going tit for tat the 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 level of this toxin versus what that toxin does to to the level of symptoms that you're experiencing or we try to give you this checkmate uh, argument that any level of air pollution is bad for the system and specifically for you guys who you are as a community so they are a community that is more susceptible because they already experience um, higher levels of air noise and light pollution um, and they obviously are are ex are experiencing in turn the psychological effects of that um, so when you then have this new stressor in a community that is already susceptible, you're going to see a very different phenomena than if that happened, for example, in a wealthy neighborhood in Mayfair, because maybe they can just leave. This community can't. So, uh, so sorry. So, so, so that bit—that's the bit that I really want to concentrate on. So, the fact that we can go in and now say this is the biological path from that construction site or that new construction site all the way to this disease pathology then a, a council a council or a developer cannot wiggle out of it it's harder for them to wiggle out of it and then when you say like we did a map for the study of the imd map which is the index of mass deprivation and when you put that against bane populations it's almost tit for tat that is not coincidence Sure. It's, it's a really. I I I think it's a really interesting <clears throat> aspect of the um, of the 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 groundedness in science of the um, of the of the work that that um, that you that the lab's doing. In a sense, just profoundly depoliticizes um, 
the problem and the solution right of course we know that it um, that it is nestled in a in a basket of um, of politics and, ne- and negativity but what this basically it, it renders it something somewhat technical right at least in the in the in the road in the ro- in the roadmap that it um, that it provides yes, to um, it is. to a solution exactly and that's why they can't wiggle out of it because it's now technical um so two things it's technical and also when when we were writing this report again i always uh, tell the team beforehand. I mean, it's not depoliticized. I mean, it's hugely political for us. Like, you know, our team is a predominantly um, team of, of, of minorities um, or marginalized communities, and that's not a coincidence. And so I always, you know, we, I always tell them at the very beginning, we are doing science for the people. That is our job. And if we can't figure it out, we're going to do it again. So when we went and we looked at Angela, um, we got the same actually results as Public Health England. Like we're like, fuck, why is it why is it a negative correlation? We should be able to go in there and go, GPs, incidences of asthma, because asthma is just such a great measurement for air pollution, right? I was like, we're gonna get something there. Nothing. And then we're like, okay, okay, well then let's try it again and let's maybe run it against um other incidences of obesity, diabetes, things that are can happen in in a two-year three-year lifespan nothing negative correlation and that's what public health england came out of they're like there has been no more gp sorry we we went and looked at gps and there hasn't been a higher level of people uh getting any like higher symptoms of asthma or etc and i was like yes but then but i said to the team it was like let's go further than that but because we can't negate the fact that these people are having that experience that's how we got to it because we didn't let it go because we are politicized by this we are moved by this that angela's going my people are getting sick and no one's understanding why they're getting sick so then from there we were like wait a minute what how does this thing with a gp how is this thing working and so what we uncovered is that gps don't don't clock what you have until you have in it that they can point to, right? So you coming in and just saying, oh, I'm having palpitations, I can't breathe today. You call the GP and the GP does blood work or checks and is like, well, you're not having, that's not asthma. Or it's not, it's not, um, it's not a cardiovascular disease yet. So, they, so then you go off as, and you get clocked as having nothing, but you're still not able to breathe, right? It hasn't entered a spreadsheet yet. Exactly. It hasn't been defined and therefore exactly. it can't be counted. Exactly. So then we were like, but then when you go at the hospital level, we you you it's very difficult to then get the data because hospitals do not correlate necessarily to neighborhood. And obviously Public Health England had had not bothered. The other measurement that they were looking at was school absenteeism, which I get it. It's a, it's a, it's a logical line like, OK, well, children surely are then becoming more absent at work since the development. But then again, we went and we're like, let's go interview the community because what if they're shift workers? If they're shift workers, those kids are going to school no matter what, because who who takes care of them? And that's exactly what we found out. So 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 sorry. So yes, it is heavily politicized, and we got there because we care, because we did not let them go and just tell them mm, the data says no. Sometimes the data does says no, and we have to go and inquire. So, but once we found that technicality of susceptibility, it was super interesting because then we went back to the WHO, and I'm like, what? The? Because we were like. Because they kept saying, "Well, the W we are we're adhering to WHO guidelines." So I was like, "That's not good enough." What well, I'm gonna, we're going to go and see. So 
Elahi, who is another, who is what again, he, his name comes up again. He's like, I found this report from 2005 because apparently they hadn't updated it. Then they still have it because it's just the guidelines. And it said in the document, not only did it point to the phenomenon of susceptibility that we had figured out because of the stress response. So we had come at it from a very different way that they had. So they had come at it from an epidemiological way. We had come at it from a neuroscience perspective, ended up in the same point. They said every single community, these are just guidelines, and every community has to be assessed for their susceptibility to air pollution. And the guidelines must adhere to that susceptibility. And we were like, that's it, checkmate. They haven't done that. No one's done that. And yeah. that's a condition yeah. that, that that reports had suggested that, or, or ruled that that was, that needed to be done in in a development in an urban area in a in a built up area, in a in a place which is inhabited. You need to check. Yes, sir. That what. is it in the WHO guidelines. They tell you because guidelines because we also looked at that. So I I, I uh, my brother and my father are industrial engineers, and I was like guideline. Mm -mm, that's a, that's that technical technically a guy because again we were trying to give her argument so it was like guideline by its own definition means that it can be amended right because it is just a generalization and or so, loosely interpreted like, exactly. like we, we we've lived through six days of this news of, <laughs> of, 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 of precisely this so i think everyone in the country is um, is aware of, um, of is aware of the difference between a rule and a guideline exactly or not exactly and so so we were so then we're like so when he found this 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 paragraph within like I don't know, it's like over 100 pages of this pamphlet that everybody has to follow. Like, you know, the WHO put, or the UN, these bodies do these really macro reports that then get disseminated to, you know, to GLA, GLA to council. So, uh, and because they had kept telling us we're following WHO guidelines, I was like, but guidelines, like I said, legally and also at a human level, they can be changed anyway. But yes, because they said, we are telling you the minimum safety, which is what a guy, you know, well, you're, you're a person in the built environment. That's what a guideline does on a, on a technical engineering level, right? So if you have a guideline for a bridge, it's like the minimum for the bridge not to fall. But that doesn't mean that that's where you stop. <laughs> um, so the WHO says, these are guidelines. However, you have to check the susceptibility of a community and then adjust the guidelines accordingly. And that's when we're like, that's the checkmate, because you well, didn't that do profoundly, that. Profoundly important for, um, for, well, for, for everybody, I'm like, I guess if that's, um, if that's uh, gonna, if that's now um, something that was maybe latent within a sea of, um, a sea of, um, sea of rules, which is now, now foregrounded, I guess there must be, um, must be a lot of work exciting and um and for the other parties i would imagine a little bit um nerve a little bit <laughs> yeah but but this is but this is again sorry why the technicality on the green infrastructure now to me is that's when i started searching for it because i'm like okay then if I, if our if our lab goes this community is susceptible who can i throw the ball to to be like adjust help me bring this air pollution down through the technicality of green infrastructure as a, as a whole this this part of the conversation kind of helped i think can um, help us segue into the um into the bit that i kind of um parked earlier on in the conversation which is this um this notion which i'm absolutely intrigued by of um of health as a system i like kind of if we can unpack a little bit by like what 
what health means i mean I'm, I'm we've danced around it in in different ways but if we can just take a moment to kind of explicate it you you don't define health as the absence of an illness do you uh, no so so yeah so you you read our little manifesto so no because again covid is just just keeps pushing us in in in, in getting stronger and we kept hearing that oh this this person's healthy no underlying conditions and i thought well it may, 100% this this virus is i mean it's a motherfucker like there's just no other way around it it can it just it changes your your inflammation system and so that's why you get everything from you know stomach problems all the way to fever to to circulate circulatory problems and strokes etc so it can of course change a healthy system a perfectly healthy system and by that i mean it has low levels of inflammation low levels of oxidative stress so that's the first thing we have to start again getting very technical from that perspective of what health is health is the is not the absence of disease but it it essentially is what i said in the in the in the, our definition it is the ability to have a sorry to have to be able after we experience trauma or stress to be able to enter back in stability for our entire lifetime so we can then have a fulfilled life so what that means is of course 100 percent, we have to go through stress stress is, is a monumentally important re, uh, response it's not a negative thing um you know without the stress response you wouldn't be able to 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 fight a cold or or even uh you know uh, be able to go. Oh, right. I'm very uncomfortable here, so therefore I need to I need to make certain adjustments from a psychological perspective. So it's a very necessary response. But but when when it is put on overdrive, but it by an enormous amount of stress, then we deregulate it. So health as a system. Sorry. So health. Sorry. Has to be seen. Number one systemically but number two we have to really talk about health resilience because that process that i just described is just that it's a process it's not a singular event which is how so far we talk about health people are healthy not healthy and i'm like but then what happens you know it, it, it doesn't happen that way you know you don't go from like i'm really healthy to then like tomorrow I have diabetes like that's not how you know it's a long it's a it's a process right so how do you how do you create a supportive system for that person to find their own resilience and by that of course I mean the built environment is a big no to that because that is where we live and that cannot be stressed enough of how important that is people that create our cities you're creating the places where we live that's everything or if it's all of it right so um as in like that's the big thing that's a big like like you you don't have more power than giving people the area or the habitat of where they of where they live um so that has to be a, a big no to consider so for example say that i i have um you know yeah i have a very stressful job but i can go to a park that gives me resilience um, or I go and maybe talk to a friend that is close by um, because uh, there's a the way that the built environment has been set up allows for good uh, social cohesion and the ability to or the affordance to build a community 
that gives me resilience, being able to also have a strong community tie. That's another note to health resilience. Of course, being able to go to a grocery store that has healthy food is another note. But not only that, I got I to gotta have instruction of, how, of what to do with the food. So that goes back to community and culture. So community and culture are, again, or culture specifically in this case, is another node to, to health resilience. Um, uh, and then you have education because education allows you in this system to, to be able to get financial security, which is another node to, to, to resilience because for example, we know that right now with COVID. For those of us that have been fortunate enough to have some financial savings or stability, our life is a lot less stressful. I mean, a lot less stressful, right? For, for the first, I mean, firstly, we're not out in the front lines having to get, uh, sorry, be, uh, making ourselves susceptible to contracting the virus in the first place. That already is a massive help to our health, right? So that's a very specific way of how, I guess, finance comes into the into the equation. And then of course, the traditional route, which is access to healthcare and to medicine, et cetera. But when all those systems are there in play, the person can then create their own map of health resilience that obviously is suited to them and to their needs. Of course, then the problem arises when we take that resilience away or we chip at that resilience by going, okay, maybe you have, you know, thankfully here we have the NHS, which is amazing. We don't have that in the United States. Um, so that's already a massive, a massive help. But if you don't have the environment or housing security, et cetera, then your resilience is that much less. I was, um, <clears throat> yeah, the, like the, you can you can see quite quickly that there's um, that that it's going to require a lot of people to be switched on to the um, to this um, to this way of thinking, to this like kind of ontology, if you like, of understanding all of the things that need to be. Um, that need to be considered i'm really struck by the similarities with um <clears throat> with uh so like in a previous life i was um i was studying international relations and i remember there that like the so this is a this is a discipline right that starts off in 1919 with the explicit intention it um support funded no less by the um by no less a luminary than the um the president of the united states um um joe wilson funded the first chair in international relations with the explicit intention of finding the science of understanding the science of peace how to achieve how to achieve um an objective state of um of peace what was the system of international relations that was going to allow um that was going to allow for there to be an end to war and then um and then by the time the second world war came around um and 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 then in the in the aftermath <coughs> a load of people came up a load of, a load of uh, mainly american german and american philosophers come along and say well you've just proved you guys can't be trusted um and and i reached then back into the annals of history and philosophy to um to seize on a number of people like thomas hobbes and um, thucydides and a bunch of these other guys who all basically um talk about um talk about war and the impossibility of um of peace and they come up with the idea that gets articulated throughout the the cold war comes to underpin in some ways the cold war where they say look there is no such thing as peace we're never actually going to achieve a system of peace the best that we can do is the absence 
of war and i don't know if this starts to map onto some of the things you're thinking but an awful lot an awful lot of um of power has been has been exercised in um in in getting to define you know what counts as violence between states what counts as violence within states and i'm really struck by the similarity of um you know in order to make these these um to uphold um uphold existing positions i just wonder if there's if there's something um something about the process of convincing people is um is this how revolutionary do we need to be we're going to be <laughs> <laughs> like but is it do, do we need incremental progress in in this in this in the in the public realm in individual cities that other cities can can learn from do we need do we need to start um do we need to win political battles like about um about whether or not we um we have um um a f taxpayer funded healthcare for for american for all american citizens which from then which we can we can kind of expand are we do we need individual in like small advances in individual policies or really have we not got is your take that we haven't got time for that do we need to blow the whole thing up and start again and uh no i am not dominic cummings or what's the other fatso uh, uh Steve Bannon? yeah that's it no um no i mean i think it, it comes to the maybe we're coming to the second point that i really want people to understand and i really do mean this in the kindest way possible i want white people to understand this very specifically which is self-esteem on like i'm not being playful on this i really this again, COVID, good Lord, how many times do I have to say this word, has really, really got me to that, to, to that observation, which is there are so many people right now that think, oh, we had a, we're in a pandemic, therefore we have to go through a shit time. No, we don't. So there's this, he's, he's amazing. He's at the moment, one of my current heroes, uh, Dr. Elon Kelman. His work is eye opening. Like this man, I was like, yep, I can't think about things in any other way. So we create crisis. That's what he says. We create it. So there is such thing as natural phenomena. A virus is a natural phenomena. So is a hurricane. We, with our response to it, create a crisis. We are the ones who move the leverage of whether it's a good thing or it's a bad thing or it's a catastrophic thing. So, right. So we look at New Zealand. New Zealand is fine. New Zealand didn't have to go through a crisis um neither did cuba neither did jamaica um neither did sierra leone right sierra leone right now is chilling with i think maybe 40 deaths rwanda's chilling still with zero deaths where are we right now but white people accept really accept shit and that's where i want to move the dial because people of color forever have been telling you it's time for change don't accept this. Don't allow them to tell you that this is the best you deserve. And that's what I see with COVID. I see so many people just going, yup, we did the best we could. I mean, what else are we going to do? This is a virus. And that's what I would say. That's what it's going to take for us to have the self-esteem and the imagination to go, we can do better because we deserve better i.e we deserve to be healthy like unhealth has become so common like you know how many people do we know whose grandparents have or parents have dementia um how many people do we know that are living with diabetes or are living with some sort of autoimmune disorder it is common but it's not normal and that's again another pillar just because it's common doesn't mean it's normal and we've accepted so much in the global north 
of that disaster is normal. And I think COVID is teaching us like the way that the global South, except for Brazil, but that's also because it's got a white supremacist government. Um, um, the way that they are responding, like, you know, Cuba, they put their people first. That's, that's actually self-esteem, right? That's people going, I'm going to ask something better from my government. I mean, Cuba may not have a, might be a wrong example of that because they're still in a dictatorship, but, but, you know, I, I'm watching how 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 like like in like Rwanda was one of the first countries that I saw put watering stations, wash stations, sorry, portable wash stations everywhere. And I was like, imagine that psychology, because that's a, that's a symbiotic relationship, right, between the people going, yeah, of course my government's gonna give me something, and also the government going, yes, of course my people are responsible enough and want something better and want me to respond in this way. Clearly, is there something in the experience of Africa? Because you're right, I've been Covering reading the same stories is there is the recent experience of um and i don't know and i don't want to project this but in the way that south korea has um and other places um had an infrastructure of test and trace in place ready to go because of um because of uh, several recent um outbreaks sars and so on you know is that was the um was the experience of um of central africa with um with ebola um in in relatively recent years was was if not the actual infrastructure then at least the um the, there was an availability of, of protocols which could be deployed quite quickly yeah it's i mean it's all again it's systemic right this is also why um it's crazy the reporting that's been done they're like by a miracle it's like that's not a miracle <laughs> you don't you don't avoid disaster at that level <laughs> by miracles um so yes, yeah, so West Africa, who's had the experience of uh, of Ebola, and also Nigeria, for example, had the experience of polio. Yes, so they had some infrastructure. Um, so for example, Nigeria deployed an app that they used. They just readapted it. The, the the app that they used for polio, they they obviously just plugged in for COVID to to deploy. But it's also a higher sense of community. Again, that's where the self-worth comes of the, the community quickly. Like, that's really important, right? For the, for the community to quickly go, yeah, I get it. Disaster, we're moving like this. Let's so go. much. And without wishing to, uh, without w wishing upon us another example, I, want, I do wonder if this is, um, this experience, fractured though it's be it seems to be becoming right now, hasn't provided um, um, some kind of em emotional and um, communal um, resources that could be um that could be activated if you know if another 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 virus comes along like they were um, like like people are saying well, we should be yeah exactly right uh, more stuff <clears throat> in the future yeah i mean community is going to be incredibly important and again it's not it's not hyperbole um it's it's very technical because I mean, there are all the telltale signs, like, you know, the way that they wanted to solve TFL. And I think, I mean, I haven't seen a change from that. But for example, what, what was a, there's a city somewhere in Germany that they're passing out face masks. They're putting uh, stuff for you to wipe your hands in for the public transport. Um, one of the cities, again, in Germany, I can't remember which one. Um, was it Germany? Oh, I forgot. There's a, there was a, there was a city that reduced um, the capacity by an inordinate amount so you can do social distancing what we what the UK or sorry London proposed was increasing the cost. Um, yeah the cost. use a price a price yeah. mechanism to manage numbers yeah <laughs> yeah that, I mean number one 
cannot explain how dumb that is. But number two, again, it's a self-worth. It's a community thing, right? That you, Because I also don't see the pushback to go, wait, no, no, this, this is not how we solve problems. Um, so we're going to have to do it at a community level because this government, God help us, we have another how many years of it. Um, they will not take responsibility. We have been given too many examples, right? I mean, people of color have seen the examples from day one, but for 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 most white people, you guys are so astonished about Dominic Cummings. I'm like, people, come on now. We knew that that's how he was going to react at this point. This is like predictable behavior. I did nearly, um, I did nearly tweet the other day about asking asking women and people of color whether or not this is the first time they've ever been spoken to like that by someone in power. In in power. No, I mean that. Galdem did a really awesome uh, article about that, that like, yeah, like you guys now know what it's like to be gaslit and this government will gaslight you all the way. And they have like, I'm listening to people that because also, how are you going to know? But like, there's so many people that honest, like good people, but you know, with no other way of not knowing that this was the best they can do. And this government is spoon feeding that myth. This is the best that we can do. And so you don't ask for anything more. You don't ask for anything better. We've spoken a little bit about the, um, about, you know, that there's an implied technical set of design measures that people could start to get, um, could start to get into to mitigate this. But I do, is there is clearly also, um, by implication, um, another way that we should, um, that we should be thinking about how to overcome biological inequality, right? And that, you know, thinking about systemically about who, who designs with what and with what problems in mind, like how, what's your take on, on how we should go about framing and, and, and grappling with that, um, with that side of the problem? Well, it's a question of this, power. Again, yeah, yeah, it is a question of power. But this is why I bring up the self-esteem situation because yes, it is people of color and marginalized communities that. So if we imagine privilege as as a as a wave, we're we're right at the edge, so we get the brunt of it. But then come um, poor white people, then come middle class people, and all the way somewhere in the elites, the elites are on a cliff nowhere interacting with the mass population they're never going to be hit by the wave right um and and sorry i should say inequality is the wave not privilege <laughs> sorry that was the wrong way around um so 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 we at the forefront that are asking for change we need to be supported by the people behind us because the wave is going to hit you right like when we were looking at um the cash community the cash the community yeah Again, and the next question after that, I was like, because I, so Josh is our person who is our, our, from the built side, he's the urbanist. And I asked him, I was like, um, so who gives who permission to, because, because, uh, Barkley was like, guys, this is, this is our jam. We're going to do this. We're going to, we're going to go and look at Brownfield sites all over London. And then, um, and I was like, who gives them permission? And so he was explaining, he's like the council. And I was like, but if that council then doesn't talk to the other council, then, then how, like, basically, how do you decide? Do the all councils come together? And the reason I was asking that is if Yeeling, uh, which is where it is at the moment goes, uh, cool, we're going to do, we're going to do this Brownfield site. And then the council next door, which is, you know, it's, it's an imaginary boundary. And, and, and say that those two brownfield sites are actually quite close together. And then they say yes to their one brownfield site. And then the next council and the next council and the next council. 
what is that level of toxicity and they are going to do to all of us? So even, I mean, I cannot disguise the fact that I live a very cushy life. I mean, I'm sitting here in a, in a place with a ton of green. I have a balcony that eventually is going to get to me because it's going to get to all of us. Right. So that's why we have to, we have to, we have to pay attention about the technicalities um, of if we understand again, the susceptibilities to go, okay, we, so what I would have liked in that conversation to be is this is what we can afford, literally, right? We can afford two brown sites per year, Barclay. We, we can't, we can't give you five because that's going to be way too much air toxicity in, in, in London. One, two, can we bring in the people that are doing our green infrastructure and go, if we're going to have these amounts of toxins, what are the things that we need to do from a green blue infrastructure to be able to, to counter that? Because I get it. We need homes to be able to counter that. And to inter- we talk to, to TF- sorry, yeah, to just interject, because I, I think that I, I've not been there, but I do gather that, that Berkeley were involved in the Kidbrook development in South London, in um, which has been has been certainly in green infrastructure circles. I don't know about health, but has been um, has been acclaimed for being a good combination. I don't know about during the build stage, but um, um, that I don't know. I just because also they haven't always dedicated themselves to brownfield sites, um, so it depends. So at this, this is where they want. To, I guess they found their niche because yes, we're going to have to learn how to do brownfield sites. No one's saying don't do it, but we got to do it with again with justice, and we got to do it with intelligence. Like we've got so many am- amazing tools, right? Of how do we do the soil hospitals better? Not even better. Let's just do it well, right? Let's do the soil hospitals well. How do we? How do we then? Um, what do we have to put in the homes that are around that site to protect them from that from from that air pollution? How do we, then? Also, we need to talk to TFL. So whilst there are days that there is more air pollution because of the construction, maybe there's something with TFL that we can do to minimize traffic so that people aren't getting the two things together and coalescing together. Um, could we also stagger? When we get the, you know, like when does the construction site trucks and happen, sorry, coming into the site so they don't create extra traffic. We can do all of those things. I mean, that's just simple. That's just, you know, simple, like spreadsheet logistics. Um, so we, that's the thing. We have all of the tools there. We just as citizens have to ask for it and say, nope, we're not going to tolerate breathing in this toxic air. Um, and again, if we, you know, this report, that's why we asked Angela if we could, because usually our reports for clients are made public, but we asked her if we could, because I was like, if it helped you as a civic engagement tool, maybe it can help other people so they can understand and go, no, uh, if, if Barclay is coming to my development or sorry, to my, to my area, I'm going to say no until you tell us and prove to us that you're not going to do the same thing. I'm per- on a personal level really excited that I've um, that I've been able to have this this conversation with you and contribute to that. Hopefully, in a small way, that process of um, of, of awareness raising. It feels to me like it's um, there's only one only one direction. This is um, this 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 should and 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 can go really. Is it, do, do you see this um, like the before I um, before I just wrap this up and ask you the questions I always um, I always badger my uh, my my guests about at the um, at the end. Do you see this? Um, um, there, 
being framed in in like a design standard you know like an iso kind of recognition how do you what's the what's the, maybe the end game is the wrong word but what's the direction of travel is it um is it um regulation standardization how do we how should we think about the um the, the, the medium medium long-term play here yeah no no there is of course there's an end game the end game is healthy habitats um so i think it's it's three things so one is we got to get the civic engagement so people need to be able to to sorry that that information should be there so people can ask for it right so there was a there was a big thing that an estate agent now is clocking and telling you where if the area that you're going to be moving to has high levels of air pollution so obviously it matters now at a civic level and that's important because that means it's going to matter at a pocket level, right? Because if you're a developer and, and going, come to my luxury flat in Hoxton, but Hoxton, yes, is one of the areas of the highest levels of air pollution in London, people are gonna be like, no thanks, I'm not giving you 1.3 for that. So I can live a toxic life, no thanks. Um, two, it has to be at a policy level. So what I mentioned about the WHO, um, we should have a policy, it should be policy that yes, we, we follow as a default to the WHO guidelines. However, in these areas where we know people are susceptible, which of course we are able to identify, we have to set even stricter guidelines. So we have to make a policy that we're taking susceptibility into, into account. Um, and, of, and, and then the, the, the third thing is that developers and urban planners um, applying the health codes that, that we put forward. Um, and that's where you can we can get into more standards that so you follow a checklist. So you a bespoke checklist, sorry. So a checklist that has taxonomies. So it has the taxonomies are all the same, but the levers and the nodes that you're that you're pushing are all bespoke. So it works more as a checklist rather than a guideline because I think guidelines, again, they always get abused and misused. Um, so that way we can say, right now what matters most in this neighborhood is that you have to do something about this horrible uh like for example old street that roundabout is what causes most of that air pollution right so let's fix that we fix that and we move so many nodes in terms of health um um that it creates a win-win for everybody right it's we know exactly where to target for, so we we can adhere to budgets and we elevate people's health and obviously then the council is happy because their residents are are healthier and they're meeting their own health uh what you call it uh standards or their own health targets i should say um and so yeah it's a it's a it's a win-win-win so we can we can identify like i said what what are the nodes that are the most important to to move really interesting stuff just because of the amount of time that we've um, that we've been um, that we've been talking i'm not going to um, i'm not going to push this now um any any <laughs> any any further but i'm um I'm, i mean outside of the pod i'm looking forward to um to seeing where this goes and seeing how i can start to implement some of these insights into my um into my professional life could i uh before we go just um run um some um some standard questions that i ask all my guests by by you so um <clears throat> Uh, if you were the boss for one day, boss of everything, if you were Dominic, Dominic Cummings for one day, oh, <laughs> president, uh, queen, prime minister, whatever the, whatever, um, whatever title we want to assume, um, if you could change one, one thing to make the world a better place, what would it be and why? Uh, elevate people's health. Health is everything. We have absolutely nothing without health. Three good things. Um, one book or podcast you love. 
Uh, well, I mean, can I say this? This has been great. This has been a really great conversation. So thank you very much. Um, so this um, podcast, I mean, I will shout out um, the Red Nation. Um, I think there's a lot to learn from people that are in environmentalism and trying to look at climate change. It's very much from an indigenous perspective which is necessary so we understand how the nodes that we're moving on this side from environmentalism isn't affecting other ecosystems which eventually affects us all over again so yeah so the red nation podcast is a is just really really interesting knowledge I'll link to it afterwards um a um a person you admire or, or, or social media channel that um that, that people should follow that you get a lot of value from do we have well if we're going from a social perspective Ibram X Kendi is I think he's actually shaped a lot of our thinking. He talks about being anti-racist and he's he's really strict with that and I like it because he's strict. But he said even a person of color can contribute to be, to racism and that my ears really perked up and he was actually the reason why our software is not available to the public or to developers because we didn't want a developer to take our software and go so this area is not worth investing i'm going to go and invest here um, and continue to perpetuate uh inequities and so yeah yeah so 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 him because he really i was like right so i can also be racist that's really fucking interesting <laughs> and that's um uh-huh. and that's and how should people um how do people um find his a book or uh what's the um so yeah so he's he's got a book called being an anti-racist um and it's a lot of examples like that that again you might think you're doing great but if you're driving in an electric vehicle that is deforesting um the congo or or causing a coup in bolivia which it has so um the what is it amnesty international has put evs as one of the top human rights violators this is this is really interesting because a conversation that comes up in um in my circle um fairly regularly is is the grounds on which any of us might think of ourselves as being like having any kind of ethical agency in the world at the moment like on what on what levels are we doing like we're it seems my my take on this which ends up sounding quite relativistic and permissive and do what you want because everything's bad but my my i i i haven't yet so i'll be interested to read this book i haven't yet found grounds on which to say the life i'm living is a good one as good as it can be um because it seems to me that everything i look at in um in my in in um the social relations that i'm enmeshed in the kind of the supply chains that i'm in enmeshed in like how there is there is not many degrees of separation between um between okay and really really not okay and and i don't know what i i think it's one of the great questions for all of us right this um in this in this period of of history is like like for us all to think through a little bit like how do we is what we're doing as good as it can be and 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 just out of self-care like where is it where where is it okay to be where is it okay to know that you're not doing as good as you can and and it and and it be okay to hold that and it not be um and it not be like a stressor right well i was gonna put it as another thing but maybe we can this will be my other positivity there is hope and responsibility i really do think that so 
once you know the cause of something and then you own that responsibility, there is hope in that. And there's also incredible mental, uh, what you call it? Like calm, mental calm, right? So at the very beginning of this situation, that was the first thing that I did. I was like, okay, what is my responsibility? I am not going to be able to change this at a governmental level. And the panic that I was getting of being able to, you know, it was like, what's gonna happen with my family? You know, we all went through that at the beginning because we just didn't know what the hell it was gonna turn into, right? And what gave me calm was that, what are you going to take responsibility for? What can you take responsibility for? Focus on that. And that's where my hope came from. And that's where my hope always comes from, is from that. And you sit with that. Um, final question before I let you go. Uh, your favorite place to immerse yourself in nature and why? <laughs> that has to be Florida. Very specifically, um, Wakaiva. That's where I grew up. Not in Wakaiva, grew up in Florida. But Wakaiva is one of the oldest, uh, probably actually one of the oldest rivers in the United States. Um, it's got tons of prehistoric vegetation and it's since i was a little girl five six years old my dad and i have gone canoeing camping and now as a 40 year old and um i still go running through the forest with my dad and it just brings everything back to like uh like everything makes sense just so much calm so much connection to because it's so wild florida is still really really wild and so when you go into the into the forest you go deep into straight into nature places like that are something outside i think of the um of the european mind i spoke with tony whitbread recently about the idea of um of, of rewilding world uh, and, and and the europe europeans difficulty with conceiving of um of wilderness is that a wild area is it yeah. relatively un and you say prehist prehistoric um uh, prehistoric. yeah i mean really you guys destroyed all your forests sadly or most of them um so you don't have a lot of that vegetation like you, you know, like the reason the british wilderness is so tame is because you killed it all um that's really sad actually because you used to have bears and wolves and all those big predators but you also need that level of habitat um but yeah i miss that like i, I really do miss like you're walking and you know i've you just see the alligators just tromping from one side of the swamp to the other side of the swamp sounds crazy when you're not there but somehow when you're there it's just because it, you just see the whole ecosystem yeah, and just the, the what do you call it the life that's a lovely note on which to close oh jelly thanks ever so much for joining me it's been fascinating <laughs>